Hello. We have a new segment on the show called Public Hygiene. This week, for men, how to lift the toilet seat and go pee in a dirty dive bar. First, balance on your non-dominant leg and firmly root the sole of your foot to the earth. Then, with your dominant leg, gently move your foot to the toilet seat lid, keeping balance so as not to fall into the toilet bowl, and put your foot to the toilet seat. Then kick up, but slowly, you don't want to fall over, as that would be messy. Also, and this is the most important part of the instruction, wear shoes, socks and shoes when you go into a dive bar. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Alan McDonnell, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show! You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony DeShane. Today on the show, we have Alan McDonald. His book, Now That I Am Gone, A Memoir Beyond Recall, is your latest memoir. Is that correct? It is the latest one, yes. Okay. And then, well, okay, let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. All right, because we're, we're totally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're what? I'm a jumper. Okay. <laughs> and, okay, um, back to professional voice. He also wrote the book Punk Elegies, which is a memoir, and Prisoner of X, 20 Years in the Hole at Hustler Magazine. Alan I got screwed up because of the jumper thing. Uh, Alan McDonald. I said that right, right? Alan McDonnell. Alan McDonnell. I'm doing the whole. I'm doing the whole thing over again. Alan McDonnell. Really? Okay. I love. You can leave that in because everybody says McDonald, and then like, it's nice to have them address it like that. No, it's McDonnell, but it, it doesn't really. I guess something that I've kind of like stopped fighting against. Oh, really? But I, yeah, but I, I haven't revert, like I haven't changed my mind and start saying my name the way other people say it. It's still yeah. McDonnell because I went to Scotland recently and uh, it was McDonnell over there. It's really? McDonnell, yeah, yeah. Right. So we leave it in as it is. That is the intro, folks. There you go. And also, the, yeah. the McDonnells were a murderous clan. They were they were like shot callers, and yeah. they yeah yeah. There's some there's this thing with the well of the seven heads yeah. which was there was a uh, mcdonald's because the mcdonald's are part of the clan donald okay and there were some mcdonald's which are not quite mcdonald's and they had a little beef in their family and they they ended up like these this uncle and his two sons killed the two cousins so they had a little they were a party and they killed them yeah. and then someone named ian the bald felt that something should happen about that yeah. And so he had to come and get clearance from the McDonnells, and the McDonnells said eventually, "Okay, you know, we're not we're not with you. We won't, but we won't fight you." Yeah. And so they went and they rounded up 50 men and they went to the McDonald, to their little, you know, their little hideaway. Yeah. And they uh, killed the father and they killed six sons, wow. cut off their heads and brought the heads to the McDonnells. Yeah. And then we piked the heads outside our little, our little castle. Wow. That was last Thursday. When was that? It was pretty recently. It was pretty recently. Here's the thing. I feel like I still have this in my blood somewhere. Not necessarily, but I have it in my like my my DNA or something. Like I have a little bit of this kind of like shot collar murder. But yeah. on the other hand, like my mother, my, my mother's father was Amish, yeah. and I have this whole kind of real aversion to any kind of confrontation. Oh, so wow. I have both at the same time. Where I think you know I could just shoot that person in the head with no compunction. And then I also have this thing where if, if, if someone challenges me about uh, the change, like the, how, if they give me the wrong change and I, and I go, wait, this is wrong, and they challenge me, I become, I just, you know, I, I shatter basically internally and I have to like walk away really fast because conflict just terrifies me. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm afraid like this kind of vicious Scottish right. murdering clansman 
will come out. Yeah. And and then I'll just rampage. And then I'd have to I'd have to forge a whole new identity. It'd be a whole different kind of like life's narrative going forward for me. And and I'm just not I'm too old to embark upon this this career you know this careening kind of right. career of like murdering everyone who offends me, <laughs> which I think is what they did in that time. That time they, yeah, it was what they called honor culture, right? Yeah, yeah. And you'd see it a lot like in like like in Kentucky and like you know the hill people because they were hill people. Yeah. And you see this, this whole honor culture thing, and uh, you see it a lot in kind of gang activity as well. And yeah. if, if someone slights your honor, there's really not that many remedies, and and all of them entail someone being physically destroyed. Right. So this is this is like way in my background. Yeah. So I don't know why I'm bringing that up. It has I've never written anything about it. There's no violence in my you know I'm not, I don't know why I brought that up. You, you, am I trying to intimidate you? I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know. I just sat down. I'm having coffee. I took a little nap, and here yeah. I am. Because well, of my name, you mispronounced my name. Exactly. That's you mispronounced my name. This is, you know, this is a lesson to everyone else. Yeah. The McDonalds. Yeah. Murderous people. Yeah. If if I have more stories. I have a story about this one time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it was the uh, 1600s. This guy named Montrose. Yeah. There is. This is a uh, in a place called uh, Glen. Uh, it was it was it was right down the coast from where the Macdonald Castle was, which uh-huh. was at uh, Glengarry. Okay. And this is like Glen Fiddick or something. But there's a there's a big, very fancy resort hotel there now, where the remains of a castle were. Yeah. And I, I got home for some reason. I looked up like this hotel, and I, I found that there was a battle there in the 1600s, where this Montrose guy. There was there's because there's a, there a 3,500 force of Austrians and, and English. Incursionary force, yeah. and this Montrose guy, he had a thousand men, but then he enlisted 500 Macdonalds. The Macdonalds always seemed to have a force of 500, wow. so he enlisted 500 Macdonalds, whose yeah. castle was only about like nine or 12 kilometers up the road. So they knew all the ways in, they knew the waterways, they knew the exit ways. Yeah. And one morning, like in the 1500s, 1600s, this Montrose's force with the 500 Macdonalds, like they killed 1,500 of his incursionary force within an hour. And then it said casualties on the Montrose Macdonald side, <laughs> minimal to none. Wow. So, I mean, I, I got home, I'm like, I realized that this really expensive, luxurious hotel that we were at, like when we were walking around in the grounds and everything, there was one morning in like, you know, 500 years ago, 600 yeah, years ago, yeah. where you could not have walked a yard without stepping on someone who had been slain by someone with my last name. Wow. Macdonald, they pronounced it. Yeah. So. So anyway, I don't know why I got to bring all that up, but but I, I was fascinated when I found out. I had no yeah. idea until just this last year. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I was just I was just like kind of blown away. Now, did it now with the the juxtaposition of internal rage and also um, not wanting to offend from your um, heritage? Did that all kind of come together when you found out about this, the McDonnell family and the clan back in the day? And you went, wait a second. It's a hereditary thing. Kind of letting you off the hook a little bit for, for wanting murderous things to happen to people who offend you. A little bit off the hook. A little bit off the hook. I, I kind of had heard about the Scottish. There was this, uh, I read somewhere, at one period, like 1700s, 1800s, their primary export was men of violence. And, 
and they had this thing like like I could see it too if I look at the the history of the Macdonalds. Like every like hundred years or so, one of the Macdonalds, like the Macdonald chieftain, yeah. would somehow get a, across the tracks with the with the British crown. And then he he ended up in France. He ended up in the Tower of London. Yeah. Uh, his castle would his his homeland. They they would you know raise the castles to the ground. They would like salt his lands. They would kill all his livestock. They would throw them all out. And then here here they, here you would see like 80 years later. There's the, another one, another Mackinac chieftain with 500 more Mackinacs ready to go, you know, ready to do battle. Yeah. And they kept popping up like this. Yeah. And so sometime, I think it was the 1700s, they had a thing called the Highland Clearances. Uh-huh. And it sounds like a sale. It sounds like a, you know, like a President's Day sale where you were, well, everything yeah, must yeah. go, everything <laughs> must go. But yeah, it was, yeah, but it was all the Mackinacs must go. What they did is the Highland Clearances, they took all the Highland Scots and they just said, you know, here you go, here's your ticket. And they sent them to Australia and Canada. Okay. And uh, it was one way, you weren't coming back. And, and a lot of them they had, like, when they got there, they were conscripted. So they had to serve in the military, whatever the, the British military was doing at that time. And then after a certain amount of time, they got some land in that country. But wow. they were not allowed to come back. Yeah. And then they switched also the... This is, you know, I'm, I just read this recently, so it's not yeah. like I'm a big expert. And they switched the British, like they switched the agriculture in the Highland areas, and they no longer grew crops. They had, they became sheep farmers because it was way easier on the land. So they had all these sheep, and you go over there, like this is the first time I went there was last summer, and there was just these sheep everywhere. So they had, it was like a mandatory expulsion yeah. of, of all these Highland Scots. It wasn't just the Macdonalds, it was, there was like, it was, you know, thousands and thousands of people got shipped out. So, so did your uh, family then? Were they did were they out to uh, Canada and Australia? And is that Canada. you Canada? Yeah, but they okay. were actually a second wave because there was that initial Highland clearance, and then there was other waves of, of times when when they had these, you know, kind of large scale immigrations from Scotland to Canada. And my family actually went. They had a uh, there was a father Andrew Macdonald. He was like some a monsignor, not yeah. quite a bishop, right? He's kind of a hustler, yeah. and he managed to hustle land for them. And then they they went from, but they were kind of the city people. Like they had been in Edinburgh by this time, they, so they were sort of city people. And they were they kind of went to Canada, and they got these farms in this kind of remote area in Alberta. Yeah. And it was very, you know, some of them. I mean, I think they made. It. I think they they ended up successfully farming this land, but it was very rough at first because they didn't know what they were doing, yeah. and they were really bitter about it. Yeah. It was cold, you know, and animals died and whatever but yeah. they hung out. I think this is the common you know this is not like an outlandish origin yeah. story anybody who's been here for a little while you go back a few generations a lot of a lot of our um, ancestors came here under duress some kind of duress yeah so I want, yeah I wonder if that's why like and then we come back to now what, what you know where we have a culture that's um, I don't know if it's uh, I don't know I don't even know what I'm talking about but our, but our culture feels like it's kind of um, Xenophobic. Yeah, well, especially right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, what's crazy about that, the, if you're offended, you might get killed. I'm really glad because there's comedians out there that are offending, so we wouldn't have any comedians yeah. in the 1600s. But it also seems like people don't want to give other people a break anymore. I mean, yeah. people need a break. I mean, there's always the, like, the border situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, no one's going on that caravan because they, because they, they, you know, they don't have anything better. It's, <clears throat> because... Like it's not a, a recreational kind of a, a outing, you know. These it's, people need a break. Those people need a break all over the place, and this uh, seems to be a, a real reluctance to put put out the hand. It's not like you, yeah. 
it's like uh, we're afraid we were going to lose everything we have or something. We're afraid we're going to be diminished in some way. Yeah. I don't know. Or they make, or they're trying to make it sound like uh, that we will will lose our our whatever possessions we have. I mean, these people are doing a caravan that long takes a ton of work and strong ethic. And I mean, if you want to put on a resume goal oriented, that's like a great one to have, you know, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Also, you never know, like, um, like something I realized, I don't know how I realized it. It might even be from movies or reading news reports or whatever. But you know, when you meet someone who's from another country and when you, if you know a little bit about the, that country you know a little bit any, whatever the political instability was there you know like, like the degree of mass murder that went on there or whatever you're talking to someone you don't know what they've been through you don't, right. and you don't know what side they've been on you don't know who you're talking to yeah. and you really should never denigrate or, or short shift or badmouth someone right. who has you have no idea what they've been through yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they could really be capable of just like <laughs> you know, making you feel like a fool, eh? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> if you really knew the whole story, you know, and then so. Um. Yeah, and you know, I I don't I don't mind being made look, look like a fool so I can learn. I because I'd rather I'd rather learn and have someone tell me, dude, no, here's how it is. I was there, and I'm like, thank you. How? Okay, tell me, please, because I would, you know, I had my little my little you know weird existence that has nothing that's as big as as that I feel the same way I feel like I've uh, like any kind of hazard that's been in my life is because I went out and sought it like I've actually I've had a relatively cushioned existence you know except for the things that I ran out and and kind of was gravitated toward and for whatever kind of need for excitement or need for some kind of validation that that fulfilled you know there's also the thing like I'm sure you I don't know, a lot of people who want to be writers or like, who start reading really young and you read kind of adventurous things and you think, I need to have adventures. Yeah. You know, I need to have like these like core kind of uh, defining experiences that, that I read about here. This, this has to happen to me so I'll be able to be communicating something that will be of value or will show that I'm of value. Not necessarily, right. you know, like I'm not even thinking I need to be of value, just you need to think I'm of value, you right. know what I mean? So. It kind of like, uh, like yeah, I hear it a lot, like people, like they first, they get into drugs because they read druggy books and then they, they get into like, where, you know, whatever kind of adventuring because they, because of the reader, the people they read when they were young. Yeah. You know. So don't read books, kids, because it's a bad influence. <laughs> it, it, it kind of is. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, you, you read books and it, it can really set you outside the norm and you, you're not going to get back in the norm. Yeah. This is like, when I was a kid, I read... Uh, I was thinking about this earlier today. It's three primary authors: it's Dickens, Mark Twain, and uh, who is the other one? Oh, Jonathan Swift. Yeah. And they're all very satirical. Yeah. They're all very anti-authority. Yeah. They're all very much uh, outside society, critical of society. Right. They're all very much, you know, keeping their 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 outsider point of view. They're others. They're, yeah. <laughs> even though, like, like. Like Mark Twain was the highest paid writer of his of his time, even yeah. though like uh, uh, Jonathan Swift that was really I think he was you know <coughs> a, 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 like a kind of highly placed politician, uh-huh. and, uh, and they were still like they're 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 you know they were not of the the <coughs> the general mass of society they were they're outsiders and, and if you like if you're a kid like I was a kid and I read. Um, 
uh, Oliver Twist because my father had this whole this whole collection of Dickens that he gotten from his father so it was there yeah. and by a kid I mean like you know 10 11 years old oh, wow. and I'm reading this and I'd already started to suspect that like the authorities like the teachers the principals that they didn't really believe some of the things they were saying and I started I'd already really? <laughs> yeah I'd already come to suspect that like like I was being lied to, I was being misled, and that, that also, like, like, what was being presented to me as goals, and, and then what was being presented as, like, 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 this country stands for this, but actually this happens, and this kind of, like, it was coming kind of, kind of clear to me, and yeah. then when you read, like, Dickens, like, he just spells it right out, and it just validates everything that you suspect, huh. and so then it's like, oh my god, this is real, and, and when you, that comes to you at a kind of a young age, right. you're gonna, you know, you're going to have problems with society for the rest of your life. So, so, I mean, this is what happens. This is what happens when you read above your weight. Well, I, I read the Bible. That was like the first book I read. And that was, oh, yeah, it's, I still have panic attacks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, that set you apart. Yeah, yeah, it did. Because it, I, was, I was also knocking on the doors and preaching the Bible. So. Really? Were you a Jehovah's Witness? Or? Yeah, yeah. So that was, that, that was, um, that was a good time. <laughs> how like how old were you when you started? Uh, what do they call it, ministering? Oh, you you start when you're when I was four years old with my dad. I was door to door, and um, and then I finally started presenting uh, the Watchtower magazine when I was six. And so you know, back then it cost like a dime or something because they, they didn't they weren't busted yet by the taxes. So so we and then we had to give our dimes and our quarters to the congregation because we couldn't keep them. Had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Is this in the Bay Area? Yeah, that was in Millbrae in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. How how old before you broke away? I broke away in weird ways. So I left. Um, I left the, the my uncle. I this is a long weird arc, but um, but my dad had a nervous breakdown. My uncle killed himself, and when I was nineteen, so then I started going to the college radio station just to hang out, and I couldn't be anywhere near Jehovah's Witnesses, but I still believed in them, yeah. and it freaked me out. And then I came back, and then I married, and then I married into it. So I was still around it for a long time until I finally, I finally, I had a book. Um, well, I left years before. The Teenage Jesus Jerk book. Yeah, and then I and then I wrote a book about it. And after that, um, I was that that cleared out any remaining family or Jehovah's Witness that ever talked to me because they're like, "You wrote a Satan book. They don't even know it's a love story." Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's um. It's funny though, like. Uh, I was talking to someone about because I'm, I was raised Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, people who, like, I remember I had this friend, his name was Dylan, and I said, What, are you Catholic? He goes, No, I'm not Catholic. And he goes, Oh, is that right? And then I found out that both his parents are Catholic. I go, yeah. My friend, you are Catholic. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. yeah you, you, have been, you have been conditioned. It's been implanted. You know, it's yeah, been implanted. Yeah. So. so it's not like, like you think, Oh, yeah, I'm a former Catholic. I mean, even though I don't yeah. go to church, even though I, whatever my conception of, afterlife higher power whatever yeah. it, whatever how, however undefined it is it's certainly not like whatever I was given to me right. still there's something about that whole Catholic thing and I'm sure with the Jehovah Witness too that it kind of forms your outlook it forms the way I'm going to take things in and give things back so, yeah and again back to the honor culture right. <laughs> you know you're going to hell my friend yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I. I mean. I. And I've learned that with a lot of, um, you, you know, a lot of ca- friends who grew up Catholic. When I talk about my like, you know, continued daily like weirdness that goes through my brain, they're like, "Oh, I have that too because of this, this, and this." And there's something about it that's almost cool 
where we where we have more camaraderie because we have that weirdness that was implanted in our DNA way too young. Even though it would have been way better not to have it, but at the same time, it's just like, oh wait, we kind we get the struggle. It's and there's, there's something else about when you reach the age when you, you, you definitively you go, like I, I had this point with with the Catholicism. Where I was like. How do you know to the priest or whoever at catechism? Like, you don't know. You don't know any more than I know. I mean, neither yeah. one of us has been dead. We don't know what's going to happen there. You don't know any more than I know about this. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. it's kind of like a, uh, like a seizing of your own intellect. It's a seizing of... of it's, it's something that people who have not been indoctrinated in something and, and don't have to reject the indoctrination, I, I feel that it's, it's the step of rejecting the indoctrination yeah. is a really uh, valuable step. Yeah, yeah. In a kid, as a kid, and it, and it really kind of like keeps you uh, prepared for whatever because it's just this life is a series of these indoctrinations, and you have to like, oh look, I'm being indoctrinated again. You mean the I'm I'm, in, I'm being indoctrinated into the tech utopia. I'm being indoctrinated right. into the online utopia. I'm being indoctrinated into whatever whatever's coming down the line, and you just have to like sift through them and go, maybe this part will work, maybe this part won't work, but it's like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I like being someone who doesn't just accept things i feel like we're we're getting with i don't with <clears throat> i like the word indoctrinate indoctrination <clears throat> i feel like we're getting this we're we're in and i'm i'm a i'm a um i'm a member of this culture too i feel it where i'm in this lulled culture where i can go oh wait i could find a good story on netflix or anything and be a totally engaged and then in my head as a writer I'm like well I'm watching this for research because I'll be able to use one of that and then you know eight hours of my life have gone by and there's like 20 more waiting right behind where it's almost like you gotta just I have to personally step back from that and go wait a second what are you doing with your time you know and then also a lot of times they're not that good yeah. like they fall apart like a lot of the like if uh, let's say it was a garment industry the entertainment, movie, TV industry. If it was a garment industry, like a lot of the, a lot of the product, right. like it would be missing an arm. Like it would be yeah. a shirt, and then like, or the or the armholes wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be able to put your arm in. I mean, yeah. there's like there's like a fundamental flaw, yeah. in almost in, in so much of it, yeah. and and yet, we still consume it as though it's, you know, some kind of apex sort of right. era of, you know, yeah. entertainment or whatever. And it's it's kind of like. That's part of the indoctrination. That that to me is another indoctrination. Yeah. Going, oh yeah, look, this is yeah. we're in the golden age. Right. We're not really in the golden age, you know. No. It's, it's 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 gilded, perhaps, but it's not golden. Yeah. And it's the same stories over and over again, just told differently. And which, but I love, but <clears throat> I'd rather have my head in a book than. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of books too, like the the resolution is stronger. It seems like there's a lot of things you the. TV shows get away with and series arcs get away with where if it was in a book and you turned in this book that it would just be sent back to you again yeah. and again and again yeah. so yeah and, th- and then there's the other element of it where like I read some books I'm like how does this get published this this is but yeah, every, well I guess publishing is so subjective because yeah. you know people can be huge celebrities and they get the it's also about what people are buying (laughs) so it depends but it's also this on the other side of that is there's so many things that you read this you just go oh my god this is so amazing why do i even try (laughs) because there's there's a ton you know there's 
I remember I had a friend one time, and I was complaining because you know people were not paying enough attention to what I was writing, and I wasn't getting the kind of traction I wanted. Yeah. And he said something about yeah, and everything else is so stupid. And I was I wish you know, yeah. you know I wish I could console myself in that way. Yeah. And actually, I kind of don't because if I if I felt that everything was so stupid and I was you know being shunned aside because I wasn't stupid, that would be a kind of frustration that would be hard to live with. Yeah. But there's a lot you know it's just like I've I've worked. Um, like recently, I was running this site, this weed news and culture site called oh, yeah. Kindland, and was hiring a lot of writers, and yeah, yeah. and I was just amazed, like the things that would come through, just the quality of the perception that was in the writing, and then the quality of how these perceptions were presented, uh-huh. and a lot of it was you know millennial age people, oh, yeah. and they were just you know all these things that people say about millennial whatever. I mean, like they they were very much uh, resisting the indoctrination. The, the people who were, you know, yeah. selling me stuff or, or sending stuff to me. Yeah. And they're very, there's this one woman named Danielle Leibowitz who did a whole series of kind of half-illustrated, half-written pieces. And there's one of them that's called uh, Maintaining Dignity in the Gig Economy, uh-huh. which is just, you know, it's, it's just any kind of, like, learned dissertation you have against, like, what the tech overlords have done to, yeah. and t- in order to, like, devalue employment and in order to, like, make employment um, more uh, insecure than it's ever been and, and you know you need three jobs like it's right in this it's right in this piece that she wrote it's all in there plus more plus the you know the human kind of experience of like you know one day you're delivering meals to someone who just got right. a TV deal and the next week maybe you got the TV deal and that person's delivering meals to you and it's just it's yeah. just, it's, 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 it's and it's unbelievable to me that she doesn't have book deals you know, it's unbelievable to me that, wow. that, 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 that how many people who were writing stuff that I was getting, like, don't have yeah. other platforms. It's, 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 it's kind of crazy how many, uh, kind of really, I hate using the word smart, but, like, really kind of, like, people who think the way I think. Let's yeah. go that way. And people yeah. who think the way I think and then have a really great way of, individual way of communicating it oh. and don't really have a, a pain outlet for that. Right. It's, it's kind of nuts. Now is that article still available? And I and then, uh, like if, where we can find it online. And the other wonder, the other question that comes to my mind is, is that something that publishers don't want to put out because they don't want to shine a light on how horrible the gig economy is, or and and then someone that would smartly like point that out, you know? I feel that publishers just want to go. They, I don't know what they. I don't know. I think they want to go with what will sell, and then you yeah. kind of there's a celebrity sells. Right. Uh, a redemption cycle sell yeah <laughs> you know what sells sells and yeah. it's it's uh, yeah. and it's and a lot of those just I, it's you know like when you read a writer and you can tell man this comes from an honest place even if it's like even if it's a sci-fi book or even if it's another genre you can there's a, there's always that little piece where you're just like this came from an honest place and it's hard to find that a lot especially in the bestsellers and then yeah. the but like like this is what I'm saying like, all these people who were sending me stuff. There was this one guy from New York, I forget his name, but he had, he did a story called Rebranding Mom, because his mother at 50 got laid off, yeah. and so it was a whole story about he went how he helped his mother put together her online presence and put together this whole kind of online kind of resume brand to brand her so that she was able to get her next job, and it was it's it. He's. I forget why I brought that up. What did, um, 
<laughs> I don't know. I, really, I think we should just show each other Rorschach drawings and go from there. No, but it was just to, to illustrate that the people know what's going on, you know, yeah. and, and and they have, and it was funny. It was a really funny piece, yeah. really funny. Oh, from the heart, and it was really right. funny, and it was really heartfelt, yeah. and it made you kind of like really feel good for the mother, for the son, for the way like she had raised him, for the way he had been raised. Uh -huh. It just made you feel really good about these people. Yeah. You know, they're in this situation. We're all in this situation where the right. the thing has changed so fast, and people are getting thrown out, yeah. and yet here they are, and they, you know, their family, and they came through, and the son. It was really kind of a beautiful, heartwarming story. Yeah. So. It, um. Oh, I, I was, and it was true, and it was true. On top right. of that, so. I remember when I was in my twenties. You know, this is over twenty years ago. When I first heard the word branding and co-branding, and I thought, what a stupid piece of shit marketing bullshit. It just blew my mind. And then now people want to, people, there's people going, oh, what's your brand? Or how do you want to present yourself? And it freaks me out every time I hear it. I don't know if you have the same action or not. Well, I've worked at, like, especially um, working online. Like the online, in the online uh, editorial world, it seems like you're always in danger of the brand manager running the editorial department. And yeah. it's always like a marketing person will run the editorial department. And they'll de determine, that they'll come in with these directives, you know, the stories need to be like this, the stories need to be like this. Do you remember a site called Defamer? Defamer was like a really vicious gossip site. And the, and the whole style of the way the guy wrote was just like, just really snippy and really nasty and brilliant at it, but, but yeah, yeah. really like negative and just tearing people down. And so uh, like the directive would be from the marketing person would be like, well, I want it like defamer, but nice. <laughs> I'm just like, great, great, good for you, <laughs> you know. But they were serious about that. And if you couldn't deliver that, you know, then you were suddenly across the tracks. But, this, but that seems to be like the, the branding seems to come first a lot of times and, and then you see like lately like like BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, like they laid off like huge portions of their editorial staff like they're what they would call content creators because oh, okay. the brand is doing something else. And at the same and at the same time I understand when a, when a publication has like a has a certain voice to it and then I, I what I would assume is what you do with that voice is you find writers that work with that voice and then you let them alone and you let them do their thing that that was the way it seems like now just where's where's the uh where's the search engine optimization words we don't have those in this place in this place it seems i don't know that's I, the, the the amount of online writing i've done i just feel like a whore doing it. yeah there's not like the seo person um like this it's tough because like like advertising itself, like it's hard to prove what the actual impact is. And so then a person comes in and they're the SEO director yeah. and they need to maintain that job and they mean, yeah. need to maintain like the sense that they're essential. Yeah. And, but a lot of times, I mean, it's a lot of things are common sense. A lot, and then a lot of things actually improve the writing. Like a lot of the SEO uh, fundamentals, like yeah. you use the full name right up front. You, you, you know, you say what you're about right up front. Like if, if you're writing for online yeah. news stuff, yeah. I mean, you don't like, talk about yourself and, and, and go like the roundabout in, entry into this into the subject matter you're like when I was in high school I had this girlfriend and she was really obsessed with 
Victorian literature, and I didn't really like Victorian literature, and this is going to be all about how we're going to get in and talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? No, you start with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and say something about that first, and that's your SEO, and that's, you know, and, and that's also like a more direct, because internet writing needs to be direct, right? It needs to be direct. It's not like you're, it's not like a kind of a, uh, it, stream of consciousness. People aren't going to just sit around because they, they go so fast. So it's got to be direct. So that makes sense. But a lot of times within the SEO that they go so much like you need to look up on Google search or whatever. You need to like look up all the terms and see which terms have like the higher value. And then you go well, which terms have higher value but less competition. And then you're going to pick your words. And then by that time you have kind of like lost your thread. <clears throat> you know, you've lost your narrative thread. And it's and it's really gets in the way of trying to have a voice and in my mind like the most essential thing to any editorial entity is the voice and it's not that it's one voice you know right. but it's that there's a, a it's, it's authentic what you're talking about you want someone authentic you want someone with heart right. and you want those voices so they don't necessarily have to be, have the same opinion they don't have to have the same right. experience they don't have to come from the same economic class but they have to have like a, an individual perception and an individual kind of reaction to something right. to what's to the circumstances that we're all sharing. Yeah. And that voice is something that, that in my mind, creates like a brand <laughs> that yeah. then can carry through and it has a, a value. Yeah. It's a brand with value, not just like a brand that's chasing whatever kind of trend right. is currently, you know, popular. Yeah, almost like, uh, you know, when you, I, you know, it's the the BuzzFeeds of the world and, and even, I used to, you know, I used to love reading Vice and now I'm just, kind of like wait why i you're, you're throwing me in weird places but i remember you know even as a kid i used to like to read the san francisco chronicle because i knew i knew herb kane was going to be in there i knew there was a good tv writer who would tell me a couple things and and so it's almost like you know what you're getting and they would have to write in a newspaper style that that you know that the lead paragraph has to be like boom and then second reference is always last name it's which i didn't realize i when i started i wrote for the chronicle for a while i had no clue what i was doing so I didn't even know about second reference being the last name. I had no clue what AP style manual was. And um, my editor was very sweet. And she said, Tony, you did this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. And I said, okay. And I ran to the library. I got the AP manual of style. I, I just <laughs> went freaked out over that so I would never get that mistake again. She even said, uh, in the second graph, and I'm like, I didn't put any graphs in there. I was like, oh, crap. And I was, I was researching what a graph was, and she went paragraph. So... No, it's funny, like I would, like when I was at, at Hustler, because I, I was at Hustler for 20 years, and I started as a proofreader, and then I became yeah. like, creative director, sort of, basically. But I did a lot of rewriting of people, and um, like I would hire people, they, would, they might have a graduate degree from an Ivy League school yeah. in journalism, yeah. and then they would not know like, like that an anonymous source like is not as strong as an on the record source yeah, yeah. and they wouldn't know why you know and and then they wouldn't sometimes they wouldn't even know that a second hand you know just or hearsay like a hearsay source oh, yeah, yeah. like they would go wait but this guy said that he said it and well that's great but you, you know that's not really a source you have you know you <clears throat> yeah so it's it's amazing even like people who are schooled yeah. like how much of this Things, things that you should take for granted, they, right. they don't realize that that's essential kind of fundamentals of how to, you know, present the reality. How to, yeah. and, and a lot of it is so that the reader 
doesn't have to work harder because you, you're already giving them information that's going to tax them. You're yeah. giving them information that they have to concentrate on, they have to absorb, and they have to, they have to internalize it, and they have to like, have a feeling about it. Right, right. And that they have to go back and forth and figure out what you're saying or who you're talking about, who said what, right. or how direct this information is, or, or what the spin on it is, or, or you know, like, like it's, it's harder for yeah. the reader, it's harder for you. Like there was this one day I was at work, I worked for this place called, it was called Take Part, it was part of Participant Media, it was kind of a do-gooder site, and um, the thing came on TV, and it was uh, about Assad, and it was said, uh, someone, an unnamed source from the president's office said that Assad is considering using chemical weapons on his people. And so then, you know, then, I, then like 10 minutes later, I hear it on another, because we had this row of TVs, right? Yeah, yeah. And the next station comes in, and it says, it says, Obama's administration says Assad is considering. And then it says Obama, had, you know, has evidence that, uh, that, uh, that Assad is using. So it went from an unnamed source within his, his I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what happened, but, it, but, the, but the progression was phenomenal. And each outlet... As you know, it's five minutes later, but each outlet made it more like a like a declarative fact, yeah. whereas it was nothing. Yeah. It was an unnamed person, nobody. It was an unnamed person saying, "Oh, someone's thinking this." Yeah, yeah. So it's, it was really nothing, <laughs> and then it became you know a declared fact yeah. that they had already used. You know, it was, it was phenomenal. So. I mean, all the people involved in that probably had pretty fancy degrees. Yeah. Pretty fancy degrees. Yeah. I mean, like if we could, we can, uh, if we can break it down now, um, like we could say Tony Duchesne is considering having sex with every single woman that's in his eyesight right now, because and, and then when he gets to me and go, you know, did you know that Tony Duchesne has had sex with every woman that I can see from here? Right. It's I know it's hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. But it's on very good authority, right, right. very good authority. And in fact, there's 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 documentation, yeah. there's visual documentation. Yeah, yeah. And um, some of the women don't want to have sex with him, but he's still considering it. And, and then that turns into <laughs> well, these women like at first they didn't they didn't they didn't know they didn't know, <clears throat> and then they he, they talked to him for like three or four minutes, and they were, they realized wait wait I, this is the chance of a lifetime I'm missing this. <laughs> And so, and they said, wait, in fact, I want to preserve this. And they all got out their phones. All these women that at first were very reluctant ended up videotaping or videophoning digitally, yeah. uh, what do you call it? Digital, capturing. capturing. Yeah. I was going to say something more like, like saving it, creating this digital legacy. Art, digital yeah, legacy. Like digital. <laughs> and so the, these are all, all available. And so send me, send yeah. me, Venmo me. Right. Uh, Eighty-five dollars, right. and I'll send you a ninety-second snippet. Yeah, and eighty-five dollars, another ninety-second snippet. Yeah, and if and if you find that, I will then mow you one hundred and eighty dollars because I want to see how much action I had yeah, <laughs> that one day. You do. You don't want to forget this. You don't want to forget this. But that's basically how the yeah. you know the press. Well, especially when then when you get the press and then you go out into social media and you get people yeah. just you know wholeheartedly not having any kind of. A desire or consciousness of how to transmit things as they really are. You, you, people have a whole uh, perspective, and they want everything to fit the perspective. And so they don't, you know, what actually happened, what actually right. could have happened, 
is is not the paramount interest. The paramount interest is I need to I need to push this perspective forward. Right. And it's everywhere. It's it's across the entire spectrum. So it's yeah. And it's 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 why we're where we are. It's yeah. part of the reason why we're where we are. It's one of the reasons why we are, are where we are. We <clears throat> seems to be people seem to some people seem to think we're at a pretty dangerous spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I can be, I I, so I was talking to someone yesterday and she's like she's like did you see the the Cohen speech or whatever? And I'm like I can't even watch any of it. I can't I have to stay completely out of it. I don't know if part of that is because of the freakiness of how I grew up, but I can't see that level of social Lunacy. I haven't. I haven't watched the news since 2016. I'm just like, I know it's bad. <laughs> I'm trying to just live a good life. I don't know. It's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be any good lives to live. Out. It could be. It could go. <clears throat> this is the problem. It is so bad that it could get to a point where there's no good lives to live. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> That's how bad it is. It's 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 phenomenally bad. Like Cohen yesterday when he was wrapping up, he said his big fear would be like what might happen if, if Trump were to lose the 2020 election. Because his, his suspicion is that Trump would not concede to a peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. This is something I've been saying since September 2016. Wow. So it's like, to anyone who would listen to me, yeah. we'll verify that that's, I've been saying this. Because yeah. it's just, this, this yeah. I mean, the, the things that are, it's, it's very scary. Yeah. He, he's dismantling uh, the government piecemeal people say he's so dumb maybe he is so dumb but he's he's very effective at what he's doing he's dismantling he's making the government ineffective ineffectual he's replacing all the cabinet heads with people who are inimical to the to the mandate of that cabinet you know he's he's just it's just so people in the government like if like if you're in the like say you're in the department of the interior or you're part of the epa your boss wants to destroy the EPA, so you have no one to report to. Like if you're earnestly trying to do what the EPA should do, you right. effectively have no one to report to. Right. So you've got this whole mass of people who are complete, who are impotent. Yeah. And and he's and the Justice Department's being picked apart. The you know the it's nuts. What we need is um, 500 uh, McDonnells. Uh, uh, to come over and uh, take care of a few things. <laughs> this is the problem because you may get 500 whatever is coming in. Because I yeah. woke up one morning during the, I shouldn't even say this because <clears throat> the way the world is today. But but I woke up one morning during the government shutdown, right. and I and I don't follow the news that closely either because it just it just freaks me out because right. I see these things and like, like people used to tell me I was paranoid off my rocker, right. and now like right. people are like oh no oh no and it kind of scares me. Yeah. But uh. I, I thought, you know, he must be pissing a lot of people off with this shutdown. A lot of people that, you know, who he maybe, and I thought someone's going to kill him. I thought it's really possible that someone will kill him. Yeah. And then I thought a little further, like whoever kills him, whoever would kill him would be a villain, like a major villain. Yeah. And they would have a plan in place to whatever power vacuum was there to fill it with their own personal villainy. Right. And it would be very hard to dislodge it once yeah. they're in there because you're not going to have elections. You're not gonna, you know, you're, 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 your election's gonna be postponed. It's gonna, you know, so it's like, so then I, I had that to, now I have that to worry about. Right. Yeah, Did you ever see the movie Bananas? That old Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Yeah. When um when he went to that country and they were gonna, he was fighting for the the I it's 
this just came into my mind when you were talking about it. Um, and I'm asking you to remember a movie that's over 40, about 40 years old. <clears throat> but um, the guy that they were fighting to bring into power, he went into power and he's like, okay, now here are the new rules. We all must wear our underwear outside of our pants or you will be shot. And it, it reminded me of that, but in a very absurd way. But it's it freaks me. Yeah, it's freaky. Yeah. Ugh. What's the you what um conversation killer though? When you when you bring up the whole idea that the whole like <coughs> the the democracy is done, though, this whole it's, it's a conversation killer. I, I don't know why I always corner myself into this kind of like dead end sort of little worrisome. <coughs> well, let's let's bring the spark back. Bring the spark back. Oh, I I have another question about the the McDonald's, the five hundred, the 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 their use. I, I, did you did you ever find out why the five the using five hundred men in battle was important or no? Well, they were there was a whole there was a whole clan system up there and this a form of self governance and they had they it was all broken down into these sort of fiefdom kind of things. Okay, and there was the larger clan Donald and that included McDonald's, uh, McDonald's. Maybe some McConnells. I'm not sure. There's this place called Armadale on the Isle of Skye, which is the, they say it's the spiritual center of the Clan Donald. And you go in there, they list all the different clans that are under the the Clan Donald umbrella. And the McDonald's were just one of those clans. But they, uh, they, um, there was a certain degree of warfare that went on. And um, they just, they, the, like, I don't think they had a limit of 500, but that's, okay. that's like, how, they, I guess they were comfortable with 500. Like, like that's yeah. how many, I guess, how many men of age and men of, you know, of a certain vigor were yeah. within that particular clan. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm, I'm sure, that, I mean, I hope they didn't just keep marrying each other because that would be bad news for me. <laughs> but, I, but I'm sure that there was sort of, like, you know, like, there was strategic marriages. It was strategic right. breeding. Whatever, and then they had, you know, they had like their land. They had, they needed to protect that, and then they had alliances, and they would go and like there. There was one later battle that one I described with this Montrose guy. There was a later one further to the north, with the British, where they got slaughtered. I mean, they just got, you know, and, and they never really came back from that. They got, they got really ripped up by that. It was some kind of, a, there was some kind of a sort of lapse in the, the transference of the British monarchy. And there is this Scottish kind of kingy guy who wanted to try and become the British king. Yeah. And so he took this group of uh, this kind of Scotsmen that he'd kind of put together. And they went and they kind of invaded England. It was much like our strategy with Iraq. They got well, we'll get there and all the British are going to rise up with us oh, against yeah, the England. Yeah. And they, they didn't really. They yeah. didn't really. And then it kind of fell apart. Yeah. And then it fell apart really bad in this one big field where... Uh, this by, by this point, I think they had guns. They had like guns, you know. They had like uh, gunpowder and bullets and rifles and shit. And um, it didn't work out well. And and then after that, I believe was when the Highland clearances were in, were put into play. Yeah, I just I, that, I, for some odd reason that 500. I'm reading this book and it's taking me forever to read. It's called The Voltaire's Bastards. And it ta- uh, one of the things that it talks about is how companies when they like grow 
and can and you know maybe they're at 200 employees and then they all of a sudden they can have a thousand employees that doesn't mean they're going to be five times as more efficient there's going to be a lot of inefficiencies so i was thinking oh maybe the mcdonald's had a little uh you know, had a little vibe into that and was like if we keep this down and we got our command it may have been an optimum number it may yeah. have been an optimum number for our, like taking care of whatever the, like livestock whatever the actual business they were doing yeah. and then also having like enough people to go and take care of whatever kind of yeah. Violence needed to happen, but and they weren't the only ones. Like there are other other families, other clans within the other, like family clans within the umbrella clan also had like you know like they had you, maybe you call it a crew now maybe whatever you call it, but they they also had like they could muster a certain amount of people battle ready men. Yeah. And so that, I mean, this is that Mel Gibson movie. I mean, you'd see them, they all, here comes the McGregors, here comes the Campbells. Here, you know, it's like they all were able to, to muster these battle-ready kind of kind of men. I don't know, what, I guess that's because the Viking, all that Viking raping that went on centuries before, whatever, but they were, they were good to go. So, Isn't it great to have Mel Gibson as your icon of uh, heritage? <laughs> I don't know. It could be worse. I mean, I don't know. He yeah. did make some I, that Apocalypto movie. Is that Apocalypto movie? I need to watch that. That is a phenomenal movie. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. Very violent, but not any more violent than like uh, uh, the Russell Crowe one, where he's a gladiator. Gladiator. Yeah, yeah. probably about equal to Gladiator on that violent scale. But I, yeah, I still need to watch. I need to watch that. I still want to watch Passion of the Christ. I, there's there's thing. See, I got to get back on my little lulling. Yeah. I got to get lulled into the storytelling. Yeah. It's not Passion of the Christ with uh, my mother-in-law, a devout Catholic. Oh yeah, it's kind of a kind of an amazing because there's not a lot of dialogue. Oh, it's kind of an amazing piece of work. I mean, whatever. Like I know that supposedly like they shipped in all these Christian people on buses to go and see it to drive up the numbers, but I mean it was a very successful movie. And I and I think that's not really a fluke. And, yeah. and the, there's a lot of reasons to argue with it, and a lot of reasons perhaps to like dismiss it as being, in in whatever ways, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the faith type thing. Yeah, whatever. You know, divisive. Yeah. But um, as as far as movie making goes, and as far as the story goes, and, yeah. and the same with Apocalypto. Apocalypto has a ticking time bomb. It's got like the the, the whole like yeah. you know, that whole like three act structure where the, the the hero is in peril, the hero almost prevails, the hero is in peril again, the greater peril. Oh, and there's this ticking time bomb in the back. Like it's perfect with that. Yeah. Perfectly, um, uh, what do you call it? Engineered, you yeah. know, calibrated. Perfectly calibrated. Great. That gives me a reason not to go to the gym and work out this week. I am so excited. <laughs> and then it's really violent. Apocalypto, and then yeah. the the settings, the scenes are really crazy, yeah. really, really out of this world. Yeah. But, he, but he had, you know, he'd blown it because that that movie got no. I think it got no nominations the year that it came out. Really? And it, yeah, I think none because he'd done the, his drunken shtick where he <laughs> kind of blew it. Yeah, it's uh, a. Now I think he's also done some sober shtick that's also blown it. So I mean, whatever. Really? Yeah, I think like some of the stuff that he like some of the. Recordings with where he's like berating women and stuff. I think that's sober. So it's like, it's funny. Uh, it's so interesting how, you know, uh, some people can be like, oh yeah, that was just me drunk, and then but you realize, oh no no, that's really you on the inside. The alcohol just or whatever just brought it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a good like if that's you drunk, it's a good idea not to drink. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because people aren't gonna put up with it. You right. know, people. people. And re- and re- and reassess your uh, your internal belief systems. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing to ongoing, I think. Yeah. Ongoing thing. 
Yeah, it's you know, that's I like that point because I feel like I'm always trying to refigure things out and hone in, and um, I don't and I'm I you know I it never ends. I and I yeah and I think that's I think that's supposed to be part of what our existence is. It's just it doesn't end until we die, but and we're always trying to hone it. No, you're always the jury's always out. The jury's yeah. jury's out. The jury's still out. Yeah. And you gotta like kind of like whenever I find that I'm like. Uh, contrary to just about everybody like I'm contrary I'm like it's not I gotta like oh wait a minute I'm like is this just because I'm smarter than everyone else right. and it's uh, I haven't really shown that to be the case really yeah. in my life really yeah. so I, I have no real evidence that I'm smarter than everyone else right. so maybe I need to like look around and see what else is going on you know it's not that I'm stupid whatever but right. uh, you know I miss things. I miss some things. And it's and we're we're always kind of formulating, um, our, you know, our existence. And then if we, if we acknowledge that we may need to adjust, that's those are the best people I want to be around. I don't want to be around someone that's, you know, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. 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 I didn't want. To, I just thought that's one of my problems. Like I, I, I tend to defend. Like I'm always like ready to defend. And I think this goes back to being a kid. You know, like, yeah. like from the the raised being raised in this sort of like punitive mindset, like I always have to defend yourself. You always have to be ready. Like I have to be like working on my defense, right? And I don't really have to, you know. Yeah. I, I don't really have to. So maybe, maybe when maybe it's because when we're younger, we do have to kind of stick the chip up and chest out a little more for people to hear us, when because we're not getting heard. Because people are like, "You'll learn later, kid." And then we find out, "Oh yeah, we do learn later." Yeah. <laughs> or, or someone else like, like the, you're telling you you're wrong when when right. you're. Yeah, I think I'm not wrong, or, or that you've done something bad when, yeah. you know, I just got a, you know, I just, I got a can, I, I took a candy bar, you know, I just took a candy bar. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. so. And, and it's going to do me more harm than good anyway, because it's going to just, you know, give me a sugar spike. Yeah, it's going to, I don't, I don't see the harm in it. <laughs> so I, I want that candy bar. Yeah. Do you have a sweet tooth? Uh, a little bit, not that much. Yeah. A little bit. I try, you know, I, when I was a boy, I did. Yeah. And I think if you have a child that's really kind of, like, uh, obsessed with, like, sugar, like, I, I would, they would hide the sugar from me. They would put it, like, in this really high cabinet so I couldn't get to it. And I would find a way to get to it. Yeah. And then I had this, like, I knew I'd be in trouble. Yeah. And I'd get, like, like that, uh, that confectionery sugar, like, for I, making oh, icing. Okay. Yeah. And I'd find that, and I'd, I'd, I'd see where it was, what the level was, and I'd go, well, look, I can eat it down to here before they'll notice. And then I would start eating it, and once I started eating it, like I would get to the point where I was going to have repercussions, uh -huh. and I couldn't stop. I would just keep going, and I dreaded the repercussions. It's right. not like I thought, oh, the hell with the repercussions. Like, and then I would just keep going. I go, oh no, I'm in so much trouble. Yeah. And then the only thing that could help me being in trouble, the feeling, that feeling, is to have another spoonful of right. sugar. And, and then, like, if you have a kid that's like that, you're going to have problems when he, you know, you're going to have problems with that kid. That kid is going to have substance abuse problems. I'm telling you right now. So That's you're, a clear sign. That's a clear sign that your kid, you know, is, is gonna, you know, you're gonna be footing a rehab bill. Yeah. But best, so, case, best case scenario. So your your parents literally did put a little level on where the sugar was for you? No, but they wouldn't know because they, they bought it. Yeah, it. yeah, they had bought it. They were used. I wasn't supposed to use it. They'd used yeah. it last. I, and I would think, oh look, because I I know I, I, when I was, I was already thinking about memory and like you know like the variants of you know how sure you can be about your memory they go well if i go this far down they can't be sure they can't be sure 
And this is like really like at five years old, I was that sophisticated in my little like <coughs> uh, conniving about like whether they would know or not. Yeah, I used to, yeah, but my mom. Because of this kind of, you know, this sort of like need to like go up the sugar. It's yeah. nuts, it's nuts. I used to eat it by the spoonful as well. My mom told me she found me sometimes just eating it by the spoonful. She was like sick and depressed when I was a kid. But, um, oh, yeah, let's stop the conversation there. How about that for a start? <laughs> conversation <Yeah. stop. laughs> I, I, I had another thought. Oh, yeah, that's kind of like when I got older, and then uh, and then my parents would have a bottle of whiskey, and then I found out, oh, wait, get it, you bring it down, and then you put water in it, and they won't they won't notice. And, you know, they my parents must have been like, because my parents weren't great drinkers, but we were really good at sneaking out drinking, so they were probably like, wow, whiskey's so watered down these days. <laughs> My tolerance is really built up. It's amazing <laughs> Look how much tolerance you get with age. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was our, uh, that's when I think of the levels and how we would be, because uh, my parents never did the bottle on the level thing, but it's I, it, when I was a kid, if we got in trouble for drinking without parental supervision, then we were brought to the elders in the congregation. So the, the stakes were kind of high. Yeah, yeah. Go outside the family. Oh, yeah, yeah. Almost all the time for certain. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, the, and my dad was an elder too. So in almost everything, he would be like, "I have to bring this before the elders." So and we got to make sure that this is okay, and you're on you know, the up and up. Yeah. That would be rough. Yeah, it was rough. <laughs> like, that would make you really, really sneaky. Like you'd have to become very, very sneaky. Because that's another thing. Like with like, with the whole how to bring it is you learn to like keep your thoughts to yourself. Yeah. And then the, you also learn to really value the ability to have your own thoughts yeah. like it's so important yeah. to be able to just go okay I can just sit here and I just have my own thoughts and I don't have to agree I don't have to get into this I just sit here and have my own little thoughts and yeah but then the, but then there's kind of repercussions because if you feel like you can't re- express your thoughts then you feel like you can't express your thoughts in just general conversations then you kind of go crazy you start writing you start writing, <laughs> you start writing. yeah you start writing I think, I think that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> part of the initial impulse. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that, and then also, like, I was, like, that's part of the initial impulse. Yeah. And then, um, like, I got positive attention right away from my teachers. Oh. So, so that was kind of good. Yeah. And then, like, one time in seventh grade, I wrote something about playing softball with these other kids. Yeah. And the teacher made me read it in front of my class. And they all thought it was, they all laughed. They were all, yeah, they all laughed, like, where I had the funny parts. They all laughed at all the funny parts, yeah. So then I thought, wow, this is, this is I can, you know, this is pretty good. Yeah. And, I, and then I just enjoyed doing it for myself, but then, like, when that happened, I was like, wow, this is. And then I found out, like, like Jack London was made a lot of money, and Mark Twain made a lot of money, and I thought, well, maybe I can make a lot of money doing this. Right, right. It's yeah. a money machine. Yeah, it's a money machine. <laughs> Some people have. Some people do. Yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting that they um, that you wrote a humorous piece. Did you ever think about uh, like, did you ever think about stand-up comedy in any way, or was it always about kind of just uh, putting the word out in more of a storytelling? Um, I get really nervous when I have to talk in front of people. I took a speech class and later, like in college, yeah. and um, like I was so nervous about it that I did really well at it. I like I would I prepared like really diligently. One time I got stoned before I did it and it went really badly and so then I didn't get stoned anymore before yeah. I did it and 
and uh, again, like I would, like I relied on people's laughter to know whether or not yeah. it went well. And so like it, I would do things that were funny to see if it got across. Right. And generally, like I got the reaction I wanted, but it would be just too stressful. Like stand-up comedy would just, it would just would have driven me crazy. I think. Yeah. It would have driven me crazy. Yeah. Because I, mean, I saw you read about a month ago, and I, you know, there were. I was just, I was cracking up, and I was totally just engaged in the story. It was, it was a blast, and it's so, so you've been doing this for a while. <laughs> it's in seventh grader. Yeah. Well, I haven't been reading out in public a lot, but yeah. you know, I like, I don't know, you know, I, I, I talk shit. You know, I, I'll yeah. talk shit to a group of people, or whatever, and yeah. so like this sort of, and I, I know people who are pretty funny. Like I've known some really funny people. Yeah. Some of them comedians, and some, some of them not. So, uh, like, I, you pick stuff up from people. Yeah. And then I just, but, um, like, I try to be, I, I like, the, the validation, like, 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 it's hard, like, people can't really fake laughing that much. Right. Like, and, and they, they're not really going to put the effort to fake laughing. And so, like, the validation is that either you pay me or you laugh. Like, if they pay you, then they really like it, and if they laugh, then they really like it. It's like the two things right, that right. kind of let you know. Either they give you money or they laugh. Yeah. So. Oh man, there's been times I. The problem too is like like I have these three books, and yeah. each every one of them I wrote as comedies. Like I read them as comedies, uh -huh. and then like people will read it and they'll go, "Oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that." I'm like, "Well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? What are you talking? This is my shtick. I mean, like, yeah, you, yeah. what do you mean?" It's, it's, so a lot of times, like what I think is so funny. Other people like just feel terrible for me, uh -huh. and I feel like if you know if you're going to tour as a comedian, you go around the country, and every every little bar or club you go to is just full of people who, by the end of the evening, feel horrible for you. What kind of like, how do you carry that? Yeah. How do you carry that reaction to the next show? Look, you're going to feel horrible for me as well, you know. And right. Soon you're like selling out stadiums. You're there at Staples Center and. <laughs> You get the whole, like, however many thousand people just feeling horrible for you. You know, it just validates everything the wrong way. So that's why I'm not a comedian. I'm just yeah. not funny enough. Yeah, I, I, love the, um, I love the comedy tragedy and how close it can play and how people can interpret it. Because when they're reading it, they're not getting your voice at the same time. They're getting the voice on the page. But they're not getting the full communication like I am where me and you are talking and you're telling the stories and they're funny, but if it was on paper, I'd be like, oh man, that's so sad, you know? But <laughs> it's not sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm bragging, I'm gloating, you know? It's crazy. It's crazy. But I like the, I remember, um, I don't remember one, but someone explained to me what gallows humor was. Uh -huh. And I really like the idea of it. Like, you're going up, you're in front of the firing squad, and you just crack a joke. Yeah. So it's like, you know, whatever you're, predicament is it's, it's it's a joke yeah, yeah. you know it's worth it's worth a joke whatever yeah. whatever it is so and so, and then that's i mean obviously like especially like uh, with the with a book cover on um prisoner of x and say just even the title the the, the the humor is right there but but then you get you get into it and there's there's a lot of tragedy to the whole experience that i think is probably the funnier funniest book of the yeah. three that's when people recognize it <laughs> it's really funny like yeah. people will tell me you know, that's the one that, that people, more often people come up to me and tell me that was so goddamn funny. Like, like, yeah. like you know, the, 
the scabs, like this is part where there's some scabs get into someone's Dr. Pepper, and then that person, I'm watching it, that person drinks the Dr. Pepper. And that's just so gross and disgusting, but hilarious, people say. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bragging. They actually say this, you know, I am bragging. I am bragging, but not with my own words. But um, yeah. that's probably the funnier, the funniest, like this yeah. straight out, like funniest one. Yeah. But I thought like the, the punk rock book was really funny too. Yeah. And then like, that's one, that's one that people said was just, it's just so sad that you had to go through that. I'm like, what are you talking about, you know? Well, it intrigued me because I, you know, I know the, I, as I knew from afar these people that you're talking about and these things that were happening. But I, uh, in Los Angeles, and you know specifically what was going on, you know, when I later learned like about the germs and and even the go go's, and it's just like to to be able to go along the journey and read it and read your experiences as, with with that era as just like oh yeah we're at Joan Jett's house and we're drinking beers and I'm just thinking wow somebody did that you know and and then but all the normal lunacy that go, that went with it, that it's it's fun to dive in. We're at Joan Jett's house and we're stealing all the beers yeah, because yeah. we know we're going to be thrown out in about four or five minutes because we're behaving badly. <laughs> so, yeah. And then that's the thing about that book is because um, it's about a lot of people, I think they went in to start reading it and they were big punk rock fans. And so they go in to read it as a punk rock fan and they're hoping, oh, look, he's going to talk about whatever band and right. you know and, and then we're gonna find out these great things of how great these what these great things these people did yeah. and then you get into my book and, and you've got like this guy from the band whatever maybe it's your one of your favorite bands and yeah. it's the Knights of Vicious Diet and he's right. being he's laying down on the ground getting kicked yeah. by some people from the valley and it's, 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 it's like it's not real flattering to yeah. it's it, but everything that I write happened it yeah. all happened I mean I researched it I mean I, I, I double-checked yeah, yeah. you know and, and it like I have this thing about the Clash playing this secret show at the Roxy, and I, you know, I remember how I remembered it. Like, like I was thinking, did that really happen? Did did people really just shower Joe Strummer with so much spit that he looked like he was the girl in a Bukaki film? Right. Did that really happen? And then I found online, you know, a recording of the show, and I, it, it did really happen. You know, wow. like the like because I remember like the other guitarists coming up and going, "Stop your gobbin!" and then right. just a shower of spit on him. You know. Yeah. And, uh, and I remembered, like, hit Joe Strummer doing this kind of, like, hippie speech about, like, Lenny Bruce in America, just, like, thinking, who is this hippie with a microphone? And then, like, did that really happen? And then on the, uh, it's, on the, it's on the recording. So it's, like, so, like, and a lot of the other things, like, I, there's a point where this guy from Slash Magazine in the book pulls a gun on me. Yeah. The first time I met him. And I'm like, did that really happen? Or is that just a story I've been telling myself? And then, like, they put out this, this uh, Hat and Beard Press put out this collection of Slash magazines, and there's a picture of Sam Yap with the gun pointed at his then-girlfriend. So, oh, wait, yeah, he had a habit. This, is, this was his shtick. So yeah, yeah. that did really happen. So, like, all these, so it helped me to have uh, kind of faith in my own memory. It's like everything that I could research. Like there's another, there's a whole section where the closing section where it happens in uh, south of Market Street, San Francisco, south of Market Street, uh, S&M Bathhouse in the New Year's Eve of 1980, I think, which is pre-age. So it was outrageous what was going on. And I'm thinking, was that really what was going on? Was there really tandem fist fucking in the on display there, or was that just like something that I manufactured? And then I went online and I found this archive of zines that were from the period, from 
a, a guy or a couple of guys who wrote about that whole bathhouse scene as it was happening. And this place was called Animals, and they, they described what was going on in there. They described the, the, the Warren, like what it was like, and, and it was what I had written. It was what I, so I was like, it made me feel like, you know, this is, this is like, I'm not like making anything up here, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, but it is kind of like, it's different than some of the other things that have come out about the era. And that, like, I don't have any kind of investment in, like, uh, um, <clears throat> turning people into idols. Right. Like, like this is why we, I got into, this is what it started, just to reject these, this yeah. whole idolizing kind of uh, depiction of people who play guitars. Right. <clears throat> I mean, it was, you know, you, you, were, you spat on that. Yeah. And, and now it's, it's this kind of like this sort of like this, because people need to make a living. People right. are 60 years old and they need to make a living. Yeah. And you know, you, you, I don't fault that at all. Right. But that's not what was going on back then. You know, like this, there's this one thing. There's this book about LA punk that came out a year or two ago, like a little bit after mine. Uh-huh. And it's uh, a compilation of a bunch of different writers, a bunch of people who were there, wrote stories about different things that had happened. Right. And there's this notorious incident where Jane Drano from the Go Go's. Like she passed out or she was looted out or something at this apartment with all these other girls who called themselves the Piranhas. They never had, they called themselves the Piranhas. And they, they um, basically, they, I guess they molested her, but they put hickeys all over her body. Like she, he had hickeys everywhere. Uh-huh. And like this story has been presented, it's like it's online on Alice Bag's place. It's been presented a few different times, you know? And so yeah. it's sort of like it's, it's like it's not a hidden story. I'm not revealing something that's, that I should, that someone else's right to talk about, not mine, right? But when they talk about it in this John in this book, this this recent LA book, like they say that that um, Jane's boyfriend, because he got really pissed off about it. His name is Terry. We call him Terry Dad. His name is Terry Graham. He was in the bags later. I think he was in the Gun Club or Cramps or whatever. Maybe both. I don't. But gun Club. I'm pretty sure. But his reaction in the book was to write in the elevator, "Piranhas suck," right? Yeah. But what he really wrote was piranhas eat lesbian shit. <laughs> See, if, in my book, if I was to cover that, I would have written piranhas eat lesbian shit. Yeah. I would have taken the risk of, of using the sexual identity as a pejorative because right. that's what happened. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that's how it was. That's what was going on. Like, I don't need to like, comb out the way this was in order that I can continue to go on and you know, present whatever I want to present. Because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this is a that, that's kind of a long-winded kind of maybe self-congratulatory. I don't know what, what what that was about. A little dig. I don't know what that was about. I apologize to everybody, but also partly it's about this. The piranhas eat lesbian shit is an amazing line. Yeah. It was an amazing end line, and they took out the amazing end line for whatever reason for whatever reason, to say piranhas suck. And I love an amazing end line. Well, there's a lot of, uh, it's very specific, and specific is awesome, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, the the film I wrote that came out, I I had guys, you know, yelling faggot at people and stuff, but it was set in the 80s, where I I was yelled that all the time. And it was, you know, you didn't dress a certain way. That's they were. Here's here comes your ass kicking. It's from like the 
to the east of here, this San Gabriel Valley, and, and that's like a, a common, you hear that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it just meant that either run or, <laughs> sorry, yeah. you know, or pee your pants or you do both. Some other shit back. Oh, yeah, yeah. See some other shit back. Yeah. Or, or act gay. <laughs> just that, oh yeah, you think I'm a fact, and then start kissing whoever's with you. Oh, yeah, I did this. This is yeah, yeah. a story that's not in my book, but was, I was with this guy named Rick Wilder, and we were in a, one of these, at that time, like this Hollywood area, like the hotels, like they were all like like reti- like old people, like old people on Social Security. There were all these Social Security hotels. And so you would go in there, and there'd be one TV in the lobby, and there'd be all these old people watching the TV, and we were trying to find cigarettes, and we were in the way, and they were yelling at us to get out, and they called they call a little thing. So we started kissing in front of them. We started making out in front of the TV. And then uh, they chased us They chased us down the street. And we got all these old guys. They're probably my age now, but they became enraged. Yeah. And they're like, you know, whole, like, it seemed like there was 12 of them. Yeah. Chasing us down the street, and then I fell, couldn't get up, <clears throat> laughing, couldn't get up. And they were descending. I mean, this woman, Sheila, who was in the book, Sheila Edwards, uh-huh. you can look her up. She was phenomenal. She sang with the Screamers at the Roxy at some oh, showcase. Yeah. She was phenomenal. She was from Detroit. But she held them all back, huh. saved me, got me to my feet, and we retreated. Yeah. I was saved by a number of women at that scene. There was another time when... Uh, that time when I, uh, the night uh, Sid Vicious got, died, someone was about to push me off a big, like a cliff almost. Yeah. And this woman, Melissa, who had been a DJ at the Rainbow, just came out and started screaming at him, yeah. leave us alone. And he was terrified of her. And he just, save me, yeah. save me. Wait, the, um, and you brought up another good point because uh, when talking about going back in the punk years where you weren't like name dropping, because I feel like a lot of those mem- you know, if you look back at a lot of those memoirs, that all doesn't happen in one week where you see every single person from every single band of that era. It happens over a few years, so there's a lot of there's a lot of mundane that actually happens. Even you know, even re- recollecting film industry stuff or whatever. There's a lot of mundane, but then there was also the fact that like we all moved into this one the same building. Not we all, but like you know, a hundred of us moved into the same building. Yeah. And that's the building where the Go-Go's formed. Yeah. There was a, I think there was one germ living there, and so the germs yeah. were always there. Uh, there was a skull there. There was uh, deadbeats were there. Um, there was a, I can't. There's a, Al's bag was there, so there were bags there, and then there's a, so there's weirdos coming over. There was a screamer there. I mean, there's you know the Danger House guy, one of the Danger House guys who was pushed out relatively early was there. Uh, a plug, there was a plug there with the first fired, the first person to ever be fired from an LA punk band. He was there, Blank Frank. Uh, Rock Bottom was there. Uh, Zola Rex, Waga Waga was there. So we were all there at the same time. Yeah. So you would see all those people in one day. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, there yeah. was a lot of doing nothing all, all right. the same. But that, that was like the crazy part about it is this guy Rod Donahue, who later became the bass player for the Mau Mau's. He was the first person to move in there. And then within like two weeks, there was a hundred of us in there because it was yeah. right across the street from the mask, and it was cheap, and it was, yeah. it was, I don't know. But but you did that. That was the thing about us is, is you know just there was so many people that were there, and then everyone else would come and hang out like like, you know, because after the mask, then everyone would go over there, and then they like the, so then X would be there, and whoever else was in town, the mumps if they were in town, they would be there. Whatever the band was in town would be there. So it, it was all right there with, within a week because the whole book takes place, I think, in two years, three years. And then it's only the time when I'm at the Canterbury where I'm actually immersed in like this whole scene. And then like a lot of the book is just 
like the aftermath of it. it just it's more like a personal story with uh, a relationship and what happens to that. And then there is like there's this guy Black Randy, and like he like I had I like I had a continuing friendship with him, which you know it ended up severing around 1980, 81 or something like that. So there's stuff with him that's in there that carries on, and he's you know he's uh, he's in the book up until the end of the book. So it's it's just. Um I mean, now, now looking back, now, are there anyone? Is there anyone from those days that you really stay in touch with, or that you're, you know, maybe even friendly with? I don't know. There's a guy named uh, Marty Goldberg who was in How Negro, and he was in the Satin Tones. Yeah. And I see him quite often. This guy Rod, who was in the Mau Mau's, I okay. like. I still maintain contact with him. Yeah. Uh, Alice Bag, I hadn't seen her in probably 30 years, and she came. I was doing these podcasts for one of my last book came out because the publisher recommended I try and do something so she came over and we did a podcast and it was amazing talking to her and seeing because again someone who validated a lot of my perceptions about yeah. that early scene and then where everybody went and why everybody left because unless you were actually like uh, in a working band making money at a certain point you know you just it wasn't really what we, you had been attracted to and what you had set like it became a different thing yeah. which has persisted and has been like really uh, fantastic and meaningful for a lot of people, but it was not what we were doing, you know. So, so it was. It, it was. In fact, the, the very reason I even wrote that punk book is because I had a reconciliation with with Brendan Mullen, the guy that started the Mask, and we were at this party where this guy Adam Parfrey, who had started Fairhouse Books, he was leaving. He's the one that published my Hustler book, okay. The Prisoner of X. And Brendan and I were talking about this punk scene, and I realized that we had, like, I had this kind of sense, like, I felt bad about how it had ended. Yeah. You know, I had this sort of like, uh, it's just this sort of like, uh, it's this very, you know, there's so many words to describe it, and none of them are coming to me, yeah. but just like, just kind of regret about how it had gone. And as I'm talking to Brendan, I realized he had the exact same regret. Like, and he had managed to like stick around and make a kind of a career out of it much longer than I had because he had, was booking different kinds of venues and stuff, you know. Right, right. But we had the same kind of feeling that, you know, it had slipped away from us and had turned into something that really, uh, <clears throat> we'd, been, we'd, we'd missed the boat sort of or something. Or yeah. somehow it, there was just this sense that uh, everyone, you know, you'd hope that it was going to be something way more meaningful to in a, in a different kind of way, it, and it did become something really meaningful to a lot of people. Yeah, you know, you can't really discount that. Right. But the fact that he and I had the same feeling, I realized that. And then I talked. I, I was talking to this Marty Goldberg guy about a different thing, and he, I sensed that he had the same kind of like, just sense of. What's the word? When you look back, it's not you. You just look back and you feel like this was really like a sad ending. You know, it, it, it just was it just it was a sad ending. Yeah. And so that's what, because I'd been trying to write this book. I've been, you know, I've been compiling stories uh -huh. for 30 years, yeah. 25, 30 years. And so this convinced me, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and put them together. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Right. And because I'm not, this isn't like my point of view, this kind of sad, you know, reminiscence kind of point of view, this elegy point of view. It's not... It's not mine alone. It, right. you know, it's a very much a shared point of view. So that's how that how I got to actually like start actually putting that together 
and with the sense that I, I wanted to try and get it published. Yeah, well, that makes that's that's amazing because then you you thought you you thought you were the only one that had that that feeling. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that I had been a big fuck up and that I had, I had blown it, and because I kind of like like I was one of the first to leave the whole thing, and I, a lot of it I felt was like I didn't know how much of it was because of my choice and how much of it was because people were rejecting me because my behavior got so bad, and I and, and then plus like I had quit Slash Magazine because they wouldn't pay me, and so I said either you pay me or I quit. This is see you later, and so I stuck to my principles, you know. I said, I'm a principal guy. I'm I'm leaving, you know. So I I kind of like I didn't I I didn't realize that other people had this kind of the shared kind of sense that it ended in a way where they had really wanted to continue on with with something different. It, I don't know if that makes sense, but you even see it like in the like in the 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 book that John Do the John Do book in the Jane Weedland. Uh, story where she talks about how people don't acknowledge that the Go-Go's were, were part of LA Punk. Yeah. People don't acknowledge that. And, and like that's what I'm talking about. Like like they were essential. They were essential to the beginning. Like Belinda was the first drummer for the Germs. You know, there's no more like 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 critical essential kind of positioning than than, than the than the Go-Go's. And the fact that it got to a place where they were no longer like really included in there, it's it's. So even with them, where they had all this success, you know, all this you know ongoing, continuing kind of like acclaim, even they, I feel, if I haven't talked to them, but I feel that even they have like this sense of like you know, kind of like, sort of a sadness about how. It played out. Sadness is. In the, you know, I'm going to get the word. The word's going to come to me like like in two hours from now, and I'll send it to you. I'll text it to you. You can we can splice it in. But but just one word. It'll just be one word. We'll it's a simple word too. But there's ten of them. You know, there's ten of them that are more specific than sad, and that have to do with you know like like somber. No, no. It's it's a thing where you look at the past and then you you look at the past and you it's, it's not really regret. But you just look at the past and, and you just have this kind of, like it's not on we, but you just look at the past and you have this feeling that. Like, yeah. like dread that something could have been better? Dread, because dread, I think, is the future. Dread is continuing. Oh, right. okay, okay. But it's it's just the sense that, you know, that, that kind of, you look at it and you feel kind of bad about yeah. how it played out. Because everybody had such high hopes at, right. at first. Like, like that's one thing I think everyone had in common. Yeah. Was they felt like like in the start of that Punkologist book, it's like I was writing it. And my wife is going, "Well, what did you all? Have? You all, you were all really angry. You're all really angry." I go, "No, we, we were all having a really great time. You know, yeah. we we're all having a lot of fun." She goes, "I think you're all really angry," and I'm thinking, "Nah, it wasn't that." And then I, I thought about it. We all thought we were special. Yeah. Like we all thought that we were really pretty special. You know, yeah. and that. And on, on, I mean, because I, I feel like you know, even when I was a teenager, I felt like I was special in my weird way. Um, maybe I didn't. I had a lot of low self-esteem. But when you're around a bunch of people with this kind of a same, um, same directive that are moving forward, that that's like a gang of well, like. What's really crazy about it is because we there's a really common denominator where we've been sort of rejected. Yeah. Like we we're all kind of others. Yeah. There was a lot of other, and we we'd all been kind of like. You know, it's not completely ostracized because Belinda was a cheerleader or whatever. You know, people, some people had been able to navigate the social high school social scene better than others. But for the most part, like everybody had been some kind of an oddball or someone off. Yeah. And, but 
felt that, you know, there is something kind of essentially great, yeah. pretty great. Yeah. It's not just special, but great. Yeah. We, everyone kind of had this sense, I'm pretty great. Yeah. And then you would get together and here's this other person who also has been kind of sidelined yeah. previously. Yeah. And, and this is the great thing, we were all kind of previously sidelined people and here was this new thing, we were there, we're at the start, we're all pretty great. Oh look, I'm gonna agree that you're pretty great too. And it was kind of like a shared yeah. kind of an unspoken adherent that we're all pretty great. And, and then the thing is like pretty soon, we're right on the verge of the world realizing as well that we're all pretty great. And so we all expect it to be lauded as being pretty great. And it didn't, you know, some people were, but not that many from Los Angeles, really. You know, really, when you think about it. And then so you meet, uh, you see Alice Bag 30 years later, when you see her, does, uh, when you, is it like, does that time just like come right back of when, of that era? That yeah, had an immediate rapport. Yeah. It was kind of immediate. Like, like the thing is like, in the meantime, like Alice, uh, like she had become private with her music. She wasn't performing. She moved to Arizona. I think she was in teaching. She's an advocate. She's very big into advocacy. She's very, very big into like uh, empowering young women. And, and you know, because, and one thing we shared about the early, L.A. Punk is like how important the women, the women were determining what was hip and what wasn't hip. You know, the women were very important in like determining who was accepted and who was not accepted and what the behavior thresholds were. You know, it was really, it was really, a, and then a lot of gays as well, it was really uh, um, ahead of its time or of its time. So we were talking about that, but I, but then in the meantime, like I had gone to, you know, I had gone the dark route because I'd been a hustler for 20 years and I'd been, done, you know, whatever. So I don't know what she expected. She agreed to come into my house and talk to me, but I don't know, like, what she might have expected. But our rapport was was instant, and then in, in whatever you know the the, the political kind of like differences, we kind of recognized that the, what we valued were the same things, like what we valued about that early time. And what it meant, like what really still meant the most to us, were were the same things, and it was kind of fantastic. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Tony. Alan McDonnell on Drinks with Tony. Check out his books. Now that I am gone, a memoir beyond recall. Prisoner of X: Twenty Years in the Hole at Hustler Magazine, magazine, and Punk Elegies: True Tales of Death Trip Kids, Wrongful Sex, and Trial by Angel Dust. Hey, have a great week and check out next week's show. We have Acer Salmon on the show. She's the author of The Wrong End of the Table, a mostly comic memoir of Mus- of a Muslim Arab American just trying to fit in. All right. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony and see you next Wednesday.